Now, today we're in Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9 again. This is sort of our theme verse because uh, let me tell you how we got here. In teaching through Acts 14, back in Acts 14, we ran across something that shows up a number of times in Acts, so we need to get the worldview right so we know why Paul says what he says and why some of these things show up, like in Acts 14 and in Acts 17 and in Acts 19 and some of the other issues that are going on. And so that's why we're doing this at the level of a worldview. Because in Acts 14, the passage we're studying, it said in Acts 14, 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying in the like Kianian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And so then last time I was teaching Sunday school, we were looking at the Tower of Babel and their desire to reach up in order to contact the gods. And so we discussed that. And then the table of nations where God scattered the nations and um, put them under the gods, but but not the gods aren't on the scene of history. They're in the unseen realm. So on the scene of history that we see are human rulers. But what we were exploring is these Elohim, plural version, that are put over the nations. And I think we ended in Daniel and where there was a, Uh, the veil pulled back and this discussion about the prince of Persia and so on. We've got more of that to talk about. Now this when it first was discussed well it's been discussed throughout church history but more recently um, scholars decided to take these things literally which is a very good thing that happened. And in the 19th century there was this idea of demythologizing the Bible as they called it and the decision was that rational people can't believe in demons gods, false gods Satan talking serpents um, a literal Adam and Eve or or, uh, you know an older earth or anything like that so we've got to come up and have a version of Christianity that is palatable to people who are rational and not, you know, ancient. But thankfully, that whole movement has been pretty well debunked, which you couldn't have expected that was going to happen. And the 20th century, with all the archaeological discoveries proving that the Bible was more literally true than anybody could have imagined, and then scholars coming up with the idea of authorial intent, which is not a new idea, but even the so-called less than conservative ones said, well, we can study the Bible according to the intent of the author. So even if they couldn't agree that there was a real Luke or a real Paul, uh, they said whoever the implied narrator is intends this. And so with that development, what happened was some of the brilliant scholarship that before we couldn't even listen to because they were just trying to debunk what we believe, have insights into the text that actually help evangelicals. Because we know that it was really Luke and really Paul, whether they do or not, they still tell, can tell us what whoever wrote it meant and what was going on. And that includes the intent that, they, that these Elohim that are mentioned in places like Psalm 82 are actually not divine in the sense of good beings, all of them, some of them are, but they're part of this divine council. So this is almost universally agreed upon with, it, with this, at least the more current commentaries that I have. And so 
We need to understand this information ourselves. And ironically, some of the people balking at it, the, taking the Bible as literally, have been evangelicals. We don't want to take the Bible literally. It can't mean what it says. We don't want to take Genesis 1, Genesis 6, 1 through 4 literally, because it seems obnoxious to us. Um, we don't want to take this and that and the other thing. Well, forget all that. Let's just all agree the Bible means what it says. And we have the tools to understand what it says, and we've got an opportunity to build a worldview based on the view of the biblical authors that are, it's the view presented in the book of Acts. Okay, so last time, this is a review slide. We looked at Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So the allotment for the nations was put under these uh, sons of God, which are part of the divine council, which we'll be looking at. We talked about that. Some of the, actually the Masoretic text had played around with this, but then that has been pretty well debunked as the correct reading because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls has a different reading, and they're from before the time of Christ than the Masoretic text from 950 A.D. It said according to the sons of Israel, but it doesn't make sense because the text is saying Israel's unique and they're under Yahweh, and the other nations are under something else. Well, why would it say according to the sons of Israel? It was just doctored at some point to make it seem... Palatable, yeah, good way to say it. And so, no, 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 we don't need it to be palatable to our human reason. We need to know what it actually says. And when they did that, they also took away from the uniqueness of Israel. Okay, that Israel really isn't a whole lot different. But here, Israel's uniquely God's people. And then I had a slide last time from Romans 13 showing that on the scene of history, you have governing authorities. Let every person be subject, Romans 13, 1, to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So here we have the divine council, but that's mostly unseen. And we saw a little bit of pull back the curtain to see it in Daniel. And on the scene of history, we interact with actual human authorities on the scene of history. Now, does that all make sense? Can we back up to speed? Okay, now let's move forward. Let's look at another passage that we want to focus on that explains the unique and important status of Israel and God's eternal plan of redemption. Israel in God's plan. Deuteronomy 4, 19 and 20 from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. When you look to the heavens and see the sun, moon and stars, all the array of heaven, do not be led astray to bow down and worship them. The Lord your God has provided them for all people everywhere under heaven. But the Lord selected you and brought you out of Egypt's iron furnace to be a people for his own inheritance as you are today. So there's a unique status for Israel. Now this allotment here tells us the the wording in the Old Testament tells us that here it says um, provided, but another translation says allotted. Maybe one of yours does. And the Septuagint version Uh, which is what I have access to the Greek, uses a word that means to allot, give, apportion, or assign. So this isn't just celestial bodies, but they saw, the ancients saw there, the gods. The heavenly hosts, the array of heaven, were divine beings. 
far as the pagans were concerned. And so God allotted these to the nations, but Israel's directly under Yahweh. Now I'm going to, let me give a, tell you who I'm going to be using as a source and make a disclaimer. The source is Dr. Michael Heiser, a man I met at a think tank out in Escondido and actually sat down and talked with him at some length. And he made a presentation there. And I read one of his theological journal articles well over 10 years ago that at the time sort of opened my eyes to this whole Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 worldview. And he wrote a book called The Unseen Realm, which I have. And the disclaimer is he has theological ideas that Eric and I disagree with. And he has done some speculating that I think is a little beyond what's reasonable. And his view on free will and, and what have you, I don't think is well thought out. And there's statements he makes in his book that I could never agree with. But when it comes to this basic worldview, he's the one who took material that was always there, but it was in the journal, theological journals, and a lot of everyday Christians don't have access to technical journals in a seminary library. Okay? And so I had read journal articles that are professional scholars talking to other professional scholars. So Dr. Heiser took that material, did his own research, and wrote it for everybody to be able to read. And then footnoted all the technical stuff. So let me cite him on Deuteronomy 4, 19 and 20. Let me see if I get the right one. Here it is. <clears throat> Dr. Heiser says, Deuteronomy 4, 19 and 20 is the other side of God's punitive coin. Whereas in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, says Heiser, God appointed or handed out the nation to the sons of God. Here we are told God, quote unquote, allotted, that's what I was saying, the gods to those nations. God decreed in the wake of Babel, that the other nations he had forsaken would have other gods besides himself. That's what they wanted. He, he punished them by giving them what they wanted. Remember when we were looking at Babel? They, 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 they were taken away from the gods because of Noah's flood. But it wasn't long where some of the descendants of Noah, there's a corporate memory of all this stuff. Okay. They want to get back up to the gods. So we're going to build our way up there. Okay, because those uh, beings that had done the sin of Genesis 6, 1 through 4 were signed into the abyss. But there were still others. They wanted to get there. But God stopped them, confused their languages, established the nations. But as a punishment, they're under these gods that they wanted. <coughs> One of the scariest punishments is when God gives you what you want when you don't want him. It's called the judgment of hardening. So they got what they wanted. But God set aside Israel for himself. Back to Heiser. He's saying the same thing. I'm quoting Heiser again. Quote, it is as though God was saying, if you don't want to obey me, I'm not interested in being your God I match you up with some other God. Well, they aren't very nice, but that's what they got. <clears throat> he says, Psalm 82, where we start our divine council discussion, echoes this decision. We'll go to that in Sunday school. That psalm says, Isaiah has Yahweh judging the other Elohim, sons of the Most High, for their corruption in administering the nations. We'll see that when we get to it. Now, when this, this corporate memory of the gods is very uh, endemic or very ingrained in the ancient peoples, 
Now, it's because of the weather, I don't, Jessica couldn't make it today, but I was talking to her on Thanksgiving Day, our daughter, Jessica, and she's reading ancient Greek literature. Uh, um, and she was telling me how the Greeks were all talking about the various gods and what they did in some of their intrigues in Greek mythology. There's also Babylonian flood stories. And so the ancient people knew about these gods, but the data they had was tainted because it wasn't through divine revelation. So they, made, they had stories of the gods because there was this corporate memory within the human race of what happened at Babel and a desire to make contact with the Elohim that are the fallen ones that's always been there. And you can see it in ancient Roman literature, ancient Greek literature, and even ancient Jewish literature. If you look at some of the intertestamental material, and you see it come up in the book of Acts. So when these miracles are done by the apostles, rather than seeing that the Jewish Messiah, the one who's in charge of the divine council, the true God, has come on the scene of history and demonstrated his power over all of the false gods through delivering people and casting out demons, which, by the way, is not therapy. It's a demonstration of the sovereignty of God through Israel's Messiah. And so when these things happen in Acts, the pagans, with their worldview that included the gods, but was inaccurate information because it was more like hearsay, there's some reality to it, but it wasn't accurate. They think, here it is. That's just how they thought. Their literature said that's how they thought. Someday when Jessie's here, I call her that. I told her husband something about Jessie, and he said, who's that? (laughs) Oh, my daughter, Jessica. They call her Jess. But anyhow, when she's here, I want her to tell a little story about what she'd been reading in that, that literature, the ancient Greek literature. So, This is just kind of the world they lived in, and they knew it. But the thing they needed to learn that they didn't know is that the only hope of true relationship with God and true salvation is through Israel's Messiah. The plan to remedy this judgment of hardening was instituted right after these things happened. In Genesis 6, you had the wickedness of the fallen sons of God and the daughters of men. You have the flood. You have Babel. You have the table of nations. And then you come to Genesis 12. So you want the gods? Well, we're not going to let you go there. Scatter the languages, send them all over. The gods are over the nations, but Yahweh is over Israel. When that was written, Israel didn't even yet exist. God hadn't even called Abram. This is foreshadowing what's going to happen. Now, turn uh, to Genesis 12. I don't have a slide for everything. But turn in your Bibles to Genesis 12, starting with verse 1. And we'll see the other side of this. And by the way, Dr. Heiser correctly puts, mentions this. In fact, let me read what he says about this in this commentary on Deuteronomy 4, 19 and 20. Dr. Heiser says, Yahweh disinherited the nations. And in the very next chapter of Genesis, he calls Abram out of, you guessed it, Mesopotamia. And again, this is not accidental. Yahweh would take a man from the heart of the rebellion and make a new nation Israel. But in his covenant with Abram, says Heiser, God said that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abram, through his descendants. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. (coughs) Excuse me. So even in the midst of the judgment of hardening, 
There's already hope, even for the pagan nations, even for the Gentiles. That's why in Acts 14, Paul said that God has told you not to do these vain things. Now they can get out from under the gods and come to God, the true God, through Messiah. In Acts 14, that's the gospel. So they got a decision. Do they want the occult, forbidden, wicked spiritual powers, or do they want to come by faith to the true God and be under him, be a Jew or Gentile? Now let's read Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Look at verse 3. That's the key. So even in the midst of judgment is a statement of future hope for all the nations. Now, I also want to say something about tangibility. There are many cases, not every case, but many cases, where Yahweh, in some of these instances, like at, well, it's, it's explicit at the burning bush, and on top of Sinai with Moses later. It's also somewhat explicit in the thing that Eric mentioned about in, in uh, Genesis 15 about the covenant, at least through a theophany. But there's tangibility to this. Abram did not get an idea in his mind that was non-tangible. There was nothing more than a metaphysical impression Oh, I think there must be some God named Yahweh. I think I'll go follow him. This is very, very tangible. Do you see why I'm saying this? It, it, there's no other way it would ever happen. Just as Messiah came and tangibly spoke. That's why they said what our eyes have seen our, in First John. Our hands have handled. Remember Thomas? There's tangibility. And so... Messiah tangibly uh, and so Eric why don't you discuss some of this while I get a new cough drop you know in fact it's funny Bob it brought to my mind in Genesis 15 remember it's very explicit where it says and he brought him outside and so this is um, this is direction when Abraham wonders how do I know that I'm going to receive the promise it says that Yahweh brought him outside and who was it that walked the blood path well it was Yahweh well, how can an ethereal spirit walk a blood path? So you see what the tangibility that Bob is referring to, that this is really a visitation where God is with Abraham and he's giving them this direction. And it's the only way that Abraham is going to leave his family. He's going to leave Mesopotamia. He's going to go to a land that he's never known. He never owns a single scintilla of the land except the cave of Machpelah to bury his wife. Well, how can he do that? Because there was this tangibility. He had direct contact with the true living God. Right. So it's a very important because what Bob is refuting is this idea of mysticism. So many today say, well, I, I hear from God too. Well, that's not the way it was with the apostles. As Bob said in First John, they heard Jesus. They saw him. They felt him. The same thing goes with Abraham. It, he was really directed by Abraham, or excuse me, by Yahweh, and more than likely, it could have been a pre-incarnate form of Christ himself. Yes. Go ahead. Just a quick question, and it might be a bunny trail, but um, in terms of God calling them out and going into the new lands um, that he's called and displacing those that were already there, how do, how do we reconcile that in terms of, do we just say it's God's sovereign will? Okay, let me explain how this actually happens. Uh, there's the unseen realm of the divine counsel and Yahweh's decision about the boundaries. 
as we will see when we get to Acts 17, God draws out the boundaries of the nation. But on the scene of history, many things happen that include good things and bad things. Okay? Wars happen. Atrocities happen. You can see that with Israel itself. And so providence includes good and evil. So how we know what is good and what is evil is through the revealed moral law of God. But God uses providence to create the boundaries of the nations. And what happens, happens in that process. And now many times, especially with Israel, because that's what the Bible's focused on, the Holy Spirit-inspired writer, the scholars called the narrator, will give us clues about what's good and evil. Okay? Now, we're going to look at one where there was an evil intent, and we're going to pull back the curtain and see one of these incidents that you're asking about, Peter, with Ahab and Micaiah. But normally we don't know. Okay? And so all these things happen. They have decisions in Parliament or Congress or presidents or prime ministers. They have debates and blah, 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 blah. This is all going to happen. Then they have action and then they come to some kind of place where there's a boundary and then there's turmoil going on. That's on the scene of history. But behind the scene, God's providence is going on. But what's revealed as his moral will is that all the different peoples, no matter what nation they're in, can find true relationship with God through Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that God is creating, Ephesians 2.15, one new man that's going to be the building of God. And so what people need to know in the midst of all the political intrigue is how to be part of that one new man and be part of the people of God for all eternity. And so this plan, I should have probably, well, I got enough slides. Um, Christy was very nice to get the ones printed here because I got them to her late. My PowerPoint kept getting longer and longer all week. Yes, go ahead, Eric, please. Just one issue that's interesting about that conquest of Canaan. I think you see um, a theological reason beginning in Genesis 9, do you remember, um, it's in the section where Noah's descendants, uh, one of them ends up uncovering the nakedness of the father, Noah, which is perhaps some sort of sexual morality. I don't know if we quite understand. There's probably a euphemism going on there. Yep. But what's interesting is Ham is the one who does it. But if you notice in Genesis, sorry, my eyes, I get a focus here. Genesis 9:24, notice the curse that Noah gives. So Ham, remember, is in the lineage of Canaan, or Canaan is in the lineage of Ham. So Ham is the one who does the sin, but notice the curse comes upon Canaan. It says, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So notice how many times Canaan comes up. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Three, three times Canaan Good reading. Com- yeah, it's interesting. Canaan comes up three times, and he hasn't even yet been born. And so the issue, I think, is there's a theological reason. Canaan, the descendants of Canaan, are going to do the same sin that Ham did. They're going to be engaged in sexual immorality because they're following the demonic realm. And so here in Genesis 9, we're given a reason by the inspired author Moses as to why it was it was necessary to kick out the, the land of the, the people of the Canaanites. And establish Israel. And establish Israel. So here you see theological justification. They're going to do the same sin that Ham does. So here the inspired writer Moses is setting you up to understand that. The Canaanites do what Ham does. We have to dispossess them. They do what is wicked. Why? Because they're infested by the Nephilim. They do what the, do- the demonic realms do. They cross boundaries just like the Nephilim did. or the Very did. good reading. Thank you. Absolutely. And so in God's sovereign purpose, the seed of Abraham will be turned into a great nation. Amen. Messiah comes through Abraham. You see that in uh, uh, genealogies. So I have a statement in my notes here I wanted to read to you. 
that I wrote. After the establishment of nations, God calls Abram out of Mesopotamia to create a plan that ultimately would give saving hope to all nations through Israel's Messiah. So in the midst of judgment, there's always a remnant, always a promise, always a seed, always a hope. That's the message of the Bible. And we need to know that. But the nations are under the divine council, which includes the fallen Elohim. Okay? So, we've got to get to another slide. I was already on this one last time. We're just getting back to it. Daniel 10, 12 to 13. Now, this is one of those instances where we get to see behind the scene, and it happens here and there in the Bible irregularly until the book of Revelation where it happens a lot. There's a lot of throne room scenes in Revelation. But most of the time, this is behind the scenes. So why does God only sometimes tell us that? Because let me tell you this. God is in charge of this, including the wicked deities. We're going to see that in Jude when we get to that. So it's not our business to tell God how to run his universe. Okay? This is how he's chosen to do it, and this is what he's revealed. We don't know the na- need to know the name of whatever fallen uh, member of the divine council is over America. We don't know. We don't need to know. Some false teachers said God himself is over America, and America is the new Israel. That's a lie. Okay? And we shouldn't listen to anything like that. We don't know. And there's a significance in the Bible to everything, what we do know and what we don't know. The secret things belong to God. And we can't intrude into those secret things because that's occultism. But there are enough instances that we do know so that we reveal, so that we know that this Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 worldview is valid. We see enough now and again to pull back the curtain so we know how God's doing it. But we don't know everything because we'd muck it up if we did. God tells us what we need to know. Okay? Now, Daniel 10, let me read verse 6 first about this uh, being that speaks to Daniel. Daniel 10, 6. Now his body was like turquoise, and his face was like the appearance of lightning, and his eyes were like torches of light, and his arms and legs were like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words was like the sound of a multitude. Daniel 10, 6 from the Lexham English Bible. So there's this divine-like prince. I don't believe this is Messiah, but it's pretty amazing. Some of the terminology reminds you of Revelation. Okay, so there's this glorious... Now, this isn't a fallen being. This is... This was a, 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 one of the Elohim, I believe, in the Divine Council it wasn't falling, fallen. That is dealing with Daniel who was at the time in Babylon, about God's future plan for Israel. Daniel 10, I just read verse 6. So let me make a statement that I wrote in my notes. This is terminology for a divine being. The Hebrew for prince is Sar, and the Septuagint for Michael uh, as a chief prince is Archon, which means a ruler or a chief ruler. So we have Michael and we have a divine being. Now let me read the the verse on the slide here. Then he said to me, that's this being from Daniel 10.6, which I say is one of these Elohim. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand, 
and humbled yourself before your God. Your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. There's that term for chief prince that I was telling about. For I was left there with the kings of Persia. So you have the kings of Persia, and you have this prince of the kingdom of Persia. So you have on the scenes, scene, and you have behind the scene. And so from here we know that there was a battle going on that was a heaven, in the heavenlies, but the results were happening down on the earth. But here's some things. Okay, this is important. Get this part of it right. Daniel wouldn't even have known about any of this had God not sent a messenger to directly tell him. Daniel had no idea there was a prince of the king of Persia exactly what that was. We're not given a lot of data. It was his business to believe the promises of God. Remember, what, what's so key in Daniel was he was reading that God would, had decreed how long the captivity would go on. And Eric, correct me anytime I get this wrong. Okay, so he knew God's going to do something, so I set himself to pray. And so he started praying, and here comes an answer. So what Daniel did, beloved, was prayed. He didn't try to fly into the heavenies by a vision and tackle the principalities and powers like the false teachers in our day do. There's a whole movement based on that abusive, wicked, false teaching that if all you do is pray to God, you're kind of a lame failure. (coughs) But if you're a real powerful Christian with revelation knowledge, you go directly (coughs) to those Elohim and boss them around. And there are false teachers, and I read their books and wrote about it to refute it, that say that God is waiting for us to do that. (coughs) That God is not going to do anything until we take charge and start bossing around the powers in the heavenlies. Now, I've written about this and written about it and debated about it and wrote some more about it and preached about it and did radio about it, but they're undeterred. They're thinking you and I are lame and failures because all we do is pray to God in faith. But dear ones, that's what Daniel did. Daniel only knew this because God decided to show him at that point in history because it was a key point in the history of Israel. Go ahead, Eric. I love this, Bob. This is so good. Um, You know, it's so beautiful. Remember, this follows after Daniel chapter 9, and it's in Daniel 9 that Bob is referring to Daniel's prayer. So Daniel's praying. He confesses the sins of Israel, and he knows that they're only going to be in captivity for 70 years because he knew from Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah had revealed that. So as the 70 years captivity starts to unfold and wind down. Daniel's excited because he knows it's time to go home. Well, that's when he prays in Daniel 9. The problem is his prayer is being hindered, as we see Bob revealed to us through the scriptures, because you have this angel who's to reveal the answer. He's being hindered by this prince of Persia. Well, who stands up to help is Michael the archangel. Right. Now, it's very interesting as Michael the archangel is often seen in texts where Israel is to be protected. So, for example, in Daniel 12, um, in fact, Daniel 12 and Revelation 12, you see the same thing. In Daniel 12, this is verse 1, it says, at that time, talking about the end in the 70th week of Daniel, it says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. Now, what people is that? Well, it's the people of Israel. Amen. If you fast forward to Revelation twelve seven, talking about within the great tribulation, Revelation twelve seven it says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against 
the dragon, which is Satan. So what's being revealed to us in Scripture is that there's this Michael, the archangel, and his job is to protect Israel. And so because the revelation that is given by God to Daniel is being restrained by Prince, the Prince of Persia, Michael is sent. So that's something you kind of want to put in your mind, that there really is this battle within the heavenly realm that we don't see. We only see what's revealed to us, as Bob is showing us. But there really are these angelic beings over the nations, and there really is this battle as we see revealed to us. Exactly. Oh, thank you. Thank you for filling in that material. And see, the battle I've had is that people accuse us of being cessationists or anti-supernaturalists or whatever, when we're telling people they ought to pray to God. Because they're saying, no, we have to take charge and tell the demons what to do. And they're wrong. They're so wrong. In fact, the Bible rebukes this in 2 Peter 2 and in Jude. But I, I can't get them to listen to me. I've had extended debates by email. No, 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 we have to do it. Well, what proof do you have? Well, one of them is the ending of Mark 16, which wasn't in the original text. So their favorite verses are the ones that weren't actually inspired by the Holy Spirit. And then any place else where they actually cast out demons. But they get the point of casting out demons wrong. The point of that through Christ and his apostles is to prove that there is a way out from the domain of Satan, that you can go from darkness to the light, from the kingdom of Satan to Christ. You can be free. And it's not therapeutic, it's salvific. It's better than therapy. Okay? A lot of people feel great on their way to hell. And And I've thought, yes, thousands of people I've interacted with over 25 years, however long there's been email, and before that, snail mail. And because I've written about this, and I keep getting the same debate. Well, people say, I heard you can cast out demons, because I wrote a story about when I used to be in that, a false ministry doing that, and how, why I got out of it. And they only read the story, and they go, help me, help me, I got this demon that's doing this and that, you got to get it out of me. And every last one, I say the same thing. Go to Christ with it. I'm not in charge of the demons. Christ is. And some people have been honest. They've actually spent thousands of dollars going to curse breakers, shamans, and deliverance counselors who charge big money, sometimes 3000 bucks a pop. And they said, well, it didn't work. Maybe you can help me. I said, go to God. You know what one guy finally said? Well, I'm afraid the symptoms don't go away and I can't live with that, so I got to keep looking. They don't think God will do it the way they want, or they think they may still have a thorn in the flesh like Paul did, so they don't want to go to God. They want to find a shaman instead. And I say, okay, I can't help you. I only have one message go to God. See, if you read this, Daniel went to God. Don't you see that? He went to God. He, God, in this case, showed him about what was going on, but he didn't put Daniel in charge of manipulating the cosmos. Daniel, the great prophet, didn't do it. We see in Jude that it didn't have... Remember the body of Moses thing? I'll talk about that later. It's not our realm. You see, it, we are... In fact, they are defiled. They're dreamers, it says in Jude. If we go where we're not belong, where we don't belong, we're like the Tower of Babel builders. We're going where God doesn't want us, into the realm of the gods. They wanted to go there. God said no. Confuse their language. Send them to nations. Establish nations. Put the gods over the nations. But the people only see the human rulers. Unless God pulls back the curtain. And that, and when he did, it was almost always about Israel. Yes, Scott. Um, maybe you said this in other words, but um, deliverance is really, uh, and casting out demons is really is usurping the authority of God, isn't it? Well, it's taking what's a sign 
that we can be free and making it a therapy for people that don't like their situation. So I keep telling people now, deliverance isn't therapy. God does something much better than taking a demon out of you. Well, what's that? He takes you out of the realm of the demons and puts you under him. And then they say, but what if I still have the demon? I said, well, then you go ask God about it because if you do, there's only one explanation. It's for your good. If God really wanted to totally remove us, the rapture would have happened already. Okay? Once the rapture happens, we won't even be in the same sphere. Right now, we're on the earth. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We don't see the demonic. Why? Because God is a merciful God. It was an act of mercy that though the nations were drawn out providentially and put under the fallen Elohim, God gave human rulers, and that's mercy. However bad the human rulers are, and they've gotten really bad. Nero was in charge when some of these things were written. They're way better than the demons. If you can imagine that. Because they're more limited in what they can get done. And uh, God raises up one, puts down another, and we can always pray to God. That's why God tells us to pray for the civil authorities. They're God's agent. We don't like it. Pray to God. Keep praying to God. We don't give enough credit to prayer. We don't give enough attention to the blessed privilege of going to the throne of grace. And if we're afraid that we don't like God's answers, what does that say about our faith in God? Remember, Paul's thorn in the flesh was a messenger from Satan. 2 Corinthians 12. He went three times, asked God to remove it. This came from Satan. We know that. Angelos, an, an angel from Satan. No, my grace, he has said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is perfected in weakness. Okay. Go about your business. I've told that to dozens and dozens, yes, hundreds of people. And they say, I don't want to take the chance. I'm going to go find a curse breaker or a demon caster outer. Then I get emails eventually because then they get, it doesn't work. Well, I have the demon and it does this and does that and does that and the other thing. I said, how do you know that? You can't see the unseen realm. How do you know what the demons are doing? You think you know what you can't really know anyhow. So that's why you got to go to God. So there you go. Okay, now, in my notes, I say humans do not ordinarily see such things, right? Daniel was God's prophet who was given this glimpse into the normally unseen realm. Why? Well, it was about Israel and her future, which is our salvation and our future, and to know that this is how it is. So I'm teaching this so that you... Dear saints will know this is how it is. But with it, it comes the warning to go to God directly because that's the greatest privilege in the universe. Do you want to go to some Elohim that wants to beat you up like the Prince of Persia? Or do you want to go to Yahweh, let him take care of it? In this case, Michael went, had a battle with this thing, happened for 21 days, Then he comes and Daniel gives his answer. Wow. All right, oh, another one. Oh, boy. Another time where God pulls back the curtain. And again, it has to do with Israel. This is the case of Ahab. Now, this was after the northern tribes, the ten tribes split off and started an apostate kingdom, the northern kingdom. Remember that? And they had two places of worship, one in the north and one in the south. Both of them were pagan, not ordained by God. They were put there so that the people wouldn't go to Jerusalem as God commanded them to do. 
and they worshiped the gods and goddesses of the pagans in the northern kingdom. So, God had determined that Ahab was going to be motivated to go into a battle that was going to be his demise. But here we get to see what the council meeting was about when they decided that's how to do it. Now, do you know the story? If you don't, we got about 10 minutes, but before next week, go read the whole story. Very interesting story. Ahab wanted to make sure he got it right, so he got 400 prophets. 400 people who believed in climate change. <laughs> 98% of all the scientists. <laughs> they can't all be wrong, can they? <laughs> okay, well, that's an aside. That's a hopefully humorous aside. But when you see the consequences of telling humans they can't have fuel for their lives and their businesses and their farms and their homes, it is a serious consequence. But for their profits... And they were all saying, go up, you will prevail, you're going to win. They were trying to uh, be, butter up the king, right? Tell him what he wants to hear. And there was this one prophet who was an aseer, Micaiah. And, and he sort of mimicked the others just because the king wasn't serious. All right, go ahead. And finally the king says, no, tell me what you really think. Knowing that this guy always had something bad to say. Have I heard from all the prophets? Well, there's this guy, Micaiah. He's always a here. What does he think? So he tells him what he wants to hear. No, tell me what God said. And he said, if you go, you'll be destroyed. Told the truth. Did I get that right? It's coming from a memory from about 20 years ago when I, uh, I used to preach on this, frankly. Um, but now we get to find out what happened. How did that come to be? That, that Ahab was motivated to go into this battle where he was destroyed. <laughs> Micaiah finally speaks the truth fully. 1 Kings 22, 19 through 22. Micaiah said, therefore, now he's going to tell him the truth. Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven... See, that's back to Deuteronomy 4. It wasn't just stars and constellations. It was Elohim, all the host of heaven standing by him. It's a divine council scene on his right and on his left. And Yahweh said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. So they're having a meeting, like a city council meeting. Okay, well, let's try this. Let's try that. <clears throat> and, and Yahweh said, who will entice? Okay, one said this, the other said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, Yahweh, and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a, a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail, go and do so. Now we know that this member of the divine council is a fallen being because the Holy Spirit only speaks the truth. A good angel isn't going to be a lying spirit, only an evil one. And so the, here we see on the scene, what's going on? You have on the scene, behind the scene, and beyond the scene in the Old Testament narratives. On the scene, interactions of humans and battles and kings and peoples. Behind the scene, the divine council. Beyond the scene, the promises of God for Israel and her Messiah. So we need to know how Old Testament narrative works. So here's a deceiving spirit. And so we know that there are evil beings that are part of the divine council. Well, why is it like that? Because that's how God's running things right now. 
It won't always be like that. There's a point in Revelation where this all gets done. It's done with. Now, what I'm going to do, we got about three minutes here. No, not, yeah, something like that. Is I want to go to Satan in his role as the accuser and show that he's also there in these, some of these scenes, especially in Job, and also get in Revelation, also in Zechariah. <clears throat> Satan is always the prosecuting attorney. Send them all to hell. Look at this sin. Look at how wicked they are. Don't, no, 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 this is bad. And he's the accuser of the brethren. But here, in the case of Ahab, all these prophets are lying to him. Now, let me make another lesson out of the whole Ahab and Ramoth Gilead narrative. Here's another lesson. If we reject the revealed moral will of God, we are asking for the lying spirits. This is a judgment of hardening. Because Ahab should have known that it wasn't Yahweh's moral will to worship other gods or for not allowing the people to go to Jerusalem for the feasts that God ordained or for the ten tribes to break off and go do their own thing amongst the pagans because they had a more fertile situation. Everything about it was against God's moral law, but God allowed it in his providence. All right? So when Ahab refused to listen to what he knew was right from Moses, then he got this. And so now that he is living in rebellion, he's wondering why he gets lying prophets. Well, if you go to the occultist, you might wonder why you get demons. Okay? If you go with the devil's Ideas, you get the devil's friends. It's like the backslid Christian or the person who grows up in the church and knows enough to, about the gospel but doesn't want to live it. And they get out in the world and they get all beat up. And it gets really bad. And then they think, well, why is God allowing this? And the answer is, well, why aren't you serving God? Why well, didn't want to. I want to go serve the devil, but I don't want any bad consequences. That's Ahab. How many of us know children of Christians like that? They know enough from having grown up in church to know what ought to be, but they don't know enough to be willing to live according to it. Why is it bad? Why am I getting beat up? Why is all this like this? Why is God allowing this? The real question is, why aren't you serving God according to the terms he's revealed? I don't want to. He's too restrictive. Like Ahab, we don't want to be restricted by Jerusalem and the law of Moses. We want to do it our own way. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. If you go into the domain of Satan and stay there, you can't question why God allows you to get beat up. But if he's going to the domain of Christ by repentance and faith and believing the gospel, if you do get beat up, you don't have to sit there and get mad and wonder why. You go to the throne of grace and bring it where you find grace, mercy, and timely help. Hebrews 4.16. You have access directly to the throne of God. If we ask anything according to his will, we know he hears us. But if you're going to be an Ahab, you get 400 prophets. But they're all wrong. <laughs> Every one of them. So there's the decision. There's my little uh, either-or thing at the end of this. Now, next week, I have to go to Iowa and do a funeral for uh, Diane's mother, but I'll be back for Sunday. And we'll go into Psalm 82. There's the chiasm. And then we'll go into this accuser of the brethren here and how that works, how the accuser, there's Satan. Here's Psalm 82 that lays out the divine counsel. So that gives you a little preview. And uh, there's a slide say, that printed 
It says, bring back the sheep. <laughs> Do you have a nice place in your Bible? Save your sheep, bring it back next Sunday. And we'll talk more about the divine council. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, and may you help us to not be like Ahab, who knows certain things but don't want to serve you. Save us from that, Lord, and may we love the truth and know that we can go to the throne of grace. And may we serve you according to your terms and not be rebellious people. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.